recognize that we are going through an extraordinary time in which social media and other recent changes are turning us all into self-righteous jerks. Our combined jerkitude threatens to destroy society. We all have to tone it down, be more humble. We don't know the truth. We don't have privileged access to the truth. And we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. The environment is important. By all means, act to preserve it. It's arguably the most important issue that we face. And I want activists to be as effective as possible, not as passionate as possible. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Jonathan Haidt's new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, comes out today, which is why I'm releasing this episode today. We talked a lot about his last book also, The Righteous Mind, which may have influenced me in the area of leadership in the environment more than the work of any other guest that I've had so far. Jonathan Haidt works on people's motivations, especially when there's a moral tinge. And one thing that we've learned over and over again from guests who are effective leaders on this podcast is that effective leadership rests on the other person's motivations, what they care about, what motivates them what their values are. And Jonathan Haidt talks about and works on and researches and writes about other people's values, what they are, how we understand them. And that's critical for leadership because a lot of people working on environmental issues, whatever they're intending to do, a lot of what they're doing is leading to populists getting elected, which is moving us in the opposite direction of what most of us probably listening to this podcast want. So let's listen to Jonathan talk about what I consider critical. He can put it better than I can. So let's listen. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan, how are you? Very well, thanks. Very pleased to be here with you, Joshua. Glad to have you. And I guess we met about a month ago. You were speaking at the World Science Festival here at NYU. And up until then, your work has been something that I've kind of known about since then. I've been very interested in because when we're talking about the environment, there's a lot of moral thinking that goes on. I don't usually use the word moral, but as you define it in your book, it's very useful. And so I've Now I've read your stuff and gotten into it, and it's fascinating. It's relevant to leadership. It's relevant to the environment. And also, your book is coming out today. So we're recording this a little bit early, but September 4th is when I get the chance to release it. It's when your book comes out. And I'm kind of torn between reviewing The Righteous Mind and talking about the coddling of the American mind. Okay, let's start with The Righteous Mind, because that's the psychological background that people need to understand what's going on on campus on the one hand, and why everyone doesn't just get on board with efforts to protect the environment. It seems kind of obvious that we should care for the planet, so why are some people uh, not persuadable? So let's let's do Righteous Mind first. Okay, and may I indulge myself in, in, maybe I could try to to summarize it quickly, not because it would be oversimplified, and the goal is not total accuracy, because the book is accurate, and I'm sure you would have made the book shorter if you could. But I'd love to summarize it with an eye towards what it can, how it can help environmental activists. Go okay. for it. Okay. And also with an eye toward listeners, I hope it makes you interested in reading more because you will be rewarded. The writing is very accessible, very fun to read, and surprisingly 
full, rich, read a couple of paragraphs and I think, oh, that was really fun to read. And then I realized I really got a lot there. Okay. So I think that a lot of people think when they judge or something happens in the world and they decide I will now judge that thing. And they think that they say they go into some truths inside and they actively judge. And evidence seems to show, as well as strains of history of, of historical philosophical thought, show that it's more that we automatically judge. There's some intuition, some emotional reaction that happens inside of us. And then afterward, we explain why that happened in the way it's sort of like the a tail wagging a dog. That's right. Moral judgment is a lot more like aesthetic judgment than it is like mathematical reasoning. Just as you see someone's face or you see a sunset, and it takes less than a quarter of a second for you to decide that it's beautiful or not. We actually make rapid, automatic judgments about social actions as well. Okay, so these judgments, what are they based on? It seems that it's based on we've evolved certain ways of thinking in our mind that some people have, I guess they've inherited some way of looking at things, and then their environments led to a certain set of ways of looking at things, and others, others. And so you talk about liberals and conservatives, for example, or people who describe themselves as liberal or conservative. Liberals will have a certain set of values that they look at things, and conservatives have others, or actually more, it looks like. More different taste buds, as it were, yes. Yeah, I guess it's sort of some people go through the world looking at things as if they're looking at only two flavors, yeah. and there's five. Think, to avoid overloading their memories, I think we should give your listeners the five found, or six foundations right now, if that's okay. Okay. So what I found in my early work on moral judgment across cultures, this was not about politics, this was about societies around the world, is that there are a lot of different foundations of morality. Morality isn't just about altruism and caring for the vulnerable. That's one foundation. We call it the care foundation related to taking care of infants. That's where it comes from evolutionarily. But there's also fairness. Every society cares a lot about fairness, reciprocity, justice. So those two are universal. And those two are the basis of the great majority of progressive morality, not just in the U.S., but wherever you go, you'll find arguments mostly about care for the vulnerable and fairness, but especially fairness as equality. The lesson that people on the left need to, or what they seem to find most useful about the righteous mind, is that I go through these other foundations of morality that everybody understands, but they're just not as developed in left-leaning systems. And those are loyalty, group loyalty, authority, respect for authority, the value of tradition and stability. That's the fourth foundation. Liberty, liberty versus oppression. And then the last one is sanctity or purity. Now, this one is absolutely crucial for the environmental movement because, as I said, everyone has access to these. Everyone understands what it means to be loyal to a group. But if left-leaning groups tend to be more uh, universalistic and cosmopolitan, they tend to not like group boundaries. They tend to not like nationalism or patriotism. But they understand what it means to be loyal to a group. It's the purity-sanctity one, which is most crucial. That's the one that you understand if you read uh, like the Bible, if you read the Hebrew Bible and the book of Leviticus, or if you read the Quran or, or Hindu scriptures, a lot of religions talk about the body as a temple and you have to protect it from defilement and you have to avoid impurity or pollution. You have to guard something that's sacred. The environmental movement is made up of people who are motivated especially by care and compassion, clearly. A lot of people, it's care and compassion for animals, sentient beings, for the earth as an organism, as it were. But for a lot of people, there's also a lot of sanctity thinking on the left. Normally, we study sanctity thinking on the right. You know, why should sex be so regulated? Why can't people just do what they want if they don't hurt anyone? 
So it's very, we can talk about more of this later, but you have to understand that people had this idea of purity and guarding something, keeping it pure. It seems irrational from the outside, but it seems obviously necessary for people in religious communities, like the kosher laws or rules of purity. But that same sanctity thinking is applied very often to think about the environment. You can see it especially about, say, GMOs. Um, now, leaving aside the issue of Monsanto, you know, using GMOs to enhance its profits, there's all kinds of problems with what Monsanto does. But in principle, GMOs could be used for great environmental and human benefit. Some people on the left think, great, let's do it. But more are afraid of this unnatural meddling with nature, putting species out there that don't belong. And so that is sometimes sanctity thinking. Well, when I think of sanctity, the first thing I think of is taking purity vows or chastity vows as something that conservatives do. So sanctity appeals broadly So the whole idea of moral foundations is that human beings evolved certain sort of low-level social cognitive abilities. And then cultures build on those to create these vast structures of moral understanding and regulation. There's what's called attachment theory. All mammals, if you look at puppies and kitties, you know, dogs and cats and humans, we interact with our offspring in the same way. We have this attachment system that regulates protection while giving them a room to play and explore. It's very low level. It's common to all mammals. Well, this psychological system becomes the basis of our thinking about compassion, care, care for the vulnerable, protection. Same thing for reciprocity and fairness. We all evolve to do reciprocal altruism. Now, with sanctity, it's really interesting because it doesn't seem to evolve from a social interaction origin. It seems to evolve from disease avoidance. So human beings, not other primates, but only human beings with our gigantic brains and our ability to process information, we keep track of the history of objects. So if somebody defecates, if there's like a place where people defecate in the camps, in the campground or, you know, wherever our our tribe lives and an animal hangs out there, we quickly learn, oh God, that animal is polluted. Never eat that animal, even if you see it elsewhere. We keep track of the history of things. We imagine invisible essences that get transmitted. A lot of religious ritual is about that. You see it very clearly in Hindu ritual, puja, the ritual of puja. There's a lot of touch. You take a pure food. It has to be a very pure food. You touch it to the the god, the object that is God, and the physical touch is essential. Properties are transmitted back and forth across the lines of touch. The worshiper takes the the offering back. It has now been touched by God. It's blessed by God. It has God in it. And then you eat it. Uh, Jewish rituals have some of this too, washing and purity. So we have this very elaborate psychology of purity and pollution, which evolved to deal with disease threats. We evolved in a world of bacteria and parasites, but now we use it to think about the environment. Let me see if I get this right about uh, one of the differences between liberal and conservatives is that if you don't realize that other people are working with different moral foundations, then if you think I care and that person disagrees with me, what they actually, they're caring about something different. Well, I shouldn't use the word care, but if they're working on something, if loyalty appeals to them about something and I don't see that, then I think they just don't care when actually they're being, they're caring about something different. That is exactly right. And that is the reason for one of our more interesting empirical findings here. We developed a scale, my colleagues and I, so I work with uh, five other social psychologists. Our research site is called yourmorals.org. So if listeners go to yourmorals.org, you can take our surveys. Our basic survey is the Moral Foundations Questionnaire. It gives you scores on five of the six. We didn't include Liberty on that. We're working on that. Anyway, in one study run by Jesse Graham, we asked people to take the Moral Foundations Questionnaire, but one third were told, pretend you're on the left. Take this as a leftist would. Another third were told, pretend you're on the right. Take this as a conservative would. Another third just took it themselves. And what we found was that people on the right People who say that they themselves are on the right 
are able to accurately guess how people on the left or the right would take it. People who are centrist, also pretty accurate. It's only people on the left, and especially people who said on a seven-point scale, I am very liberal, they picked the leftmost point. Those people were very inaccurate for exactly the reason you said, which is they understand care, compassion, and fairness, but if somebody does something that seems disloyal to the group in order to help somebody else, a conservative will still say that that's wrong, it's disloyal. People on the left couldn't empathize. They couldn't see the world that way. And I think part of it is because conservatives have all of the foundations, and everybody has all of them, but conservative morality has developed and articulated all of them, whereas people on the left think, well, if it's not about caring for the vulnerable, then it's not morality. And conservatives must do the things they do. They must not like immigrants because they're just racists who want to hurt people or whatever. So yeah, there's a larger empathy gap for the left than there is for the right. A related phenomenon is that because the left controls the creative industries, the arts, entertainment, media, newspapers, so you can't grow up in America without being exposed to a lot of left-leaning ideas. Everybody knows what the left thinks, but people on the left often don't know what the right thinks. There's no opportunity to read them. I was always on the left growing up, and it wasn't until I started writing The Righteous Mind and I started actually trying to read conservative stuff that I realized, wow, I'm 44 years old, 45 years old. I never knew any of this stuff. You said it literally floored you because you're reading a book and like you sat down on the floor. That's what I literally had to sit down on the floor and say, oh my God, this is amazing. And here, let me be clear. I'm not talking about the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a moral and policy disaster. I thought they lost their mind five or 10 years ago, and now I think they've lost their soul. Nothing I say should ever be taken as defense of the Republican Party. But there are conservative intellectuals, stretching back to Edmund Burke, that I think have had enormously important insights into human society. And I think if you have if you have insights from the left and the right, it's like yin and yang. You really need both perspectives to get a good society. So that's one of the missions I've been on, is to try to help people understand we are all so flawed, so biased, so prone to just do post hoc reasoning to defend what we think or what our group thinks. We need critics. We need well-meaning, intelligent critics to improve our own thinking. Each of your works seems to have the seeds of the next one in it. I feel like when you read your work, it's hard not to imagine, I guess it's accurate, of a growth and development on a personal level yeah. of you. That's exactly what happened. And I think it's leading increasingly to being active and not just writing about stuff and studying stuff, but taking on a That's leadership correct. role. That's correct. Yeah, the basic story is very simple. My first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. It grew out of a course I taught at the University of Virginia. And I took um, 10 I read a lot of ancient writings, took out all the best psychological ideas. So it was uh, 10 chapters on 10 ancient ideas. Things like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, or there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So I wrote this book on ancient wisdom, and it's totally not political, and I was very much on the left then. And then as American polarization started increasing, and as the Democrats kept losing in 2000 and 2004, I couldn't stand it. I thought the Democrats don't know how to talk about morality. I've got to help them. And so I started doing the research for the righteous mind to apply my research on moral psychology to help the Democrats win. And in the process, I at least came to understand the right and libertarians also. So I write the righteous mind. By the end of the book, it's not how can the Democrats win? It's, my God, we've got to all understand each other because this country is in big trouble. And I was saying this in 2011 as our polarization was increasing and trust in the political system was decreasing. So I write these two books and then the universities begin to melt down in 2015. Actually, right after I wrote an article with Greg Lukianoff called 
The Coddling of the American Mind. We wrote that article based on just some weird things that were happening. We didn't have any hard data. Just a lot of weird stories were coming out of universities about the need for safe spaces and people shouting down speakers and all sorts of things like that. This was in the Atlantic? In the Atlantic in August of 2015. And then in the fall of 2015, there began the wave of student protests at Yale and Amherst and uh, Brown and and, uh, Missouri. So basically, the way I put it is this. If you took universities and you said, let's run a university by completely contradicting everything in Height's first two books, let's ignore ancient wisdom, let's teach the opposite, and let's ignore moral psychology, let's ramp up tribalism, let's ramp up confirmation biases, and let's destroy the processes of that keep us honest and modest. If you disregarded everything I said in my first two books, I think that's the direction we're going in with our universities, and that's why Lukianoff and I wrote this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I can't help but wonder, asking, what does it feel like to watch this happening in front of your eyes? You're in the middle of it, right? I mean, and having a glimpse of what's going on, and everyone misses, I think a lot of people think, I'm right, they're wrong. All we have to do is make sure that they get them to see that I'm right, and then problem solved. But that's not the issue at all. That's right. As for how I feel about it, the metaphor that I like to use, for those who remember Jurassic Park, there's a moment in the first movie, Jurassic Park, where they go to the island, and the husband, it's you know the husband-wife team, the husband sees the, the dinosaur. And his wife, she's a botanist, she looks down, she's like, oh my God, they've got extinct plants here. You know, and the husband says, honey, look. And she's totally focused on the plants. And he grabs her head and tilts it up so she can see the dinosaur. Okay, that's the way I feel. I feel like... No head to tilt, though. Well, okay, you're right. But what I mean is, like, in theory, I've been studying this stuff in theory. And then, in theory, this country could break up. In theory, this country could end. Things could get that bad, like, in 30 or 40 years, I thought. And then a couple years later, it's like, oh, my God. Like, we really could break up. Like, this this could be incredibly serious. Democracies are not really very stable. And we've been kidding ourselves because we only know the high point of American democracy when all the forces happen to be converging on keeping us together. But they couldn't last, and they're not lasting. And there's a real risk we're going to come apart. So you ask me, what's it like? The answer is it's completely terrifying. I'm very pessimistic about the future of America, at least in the next 10 or 15 years. You know, 50 years, who knows? But it is also kind of thrilling to be a social scientist right now because it's the most interesting time since the 1930s. This sounds a lot like how I feel about the environment because Mm -hmm. just everyone's like, this is a really important issue. Like, I had this conversation with a woman at a cafe, and she's, listeners can't see this, but I'm holding my hand next to my face. And she's saying to me, you know, people don't even realize how much they're using disposable stuff and throwing it away. And there's like inches from her face is the disposable coffee cup she's holding. And I feel like that's our world. It's like everyone's full of understanding. Okay, right, good. That's a good example. So this is one of the key psychological ideas I like to give to all your listeners is people are not unified logical creatures. We do different things. We're like a committee. Our mind is like a committee that doesn't necessarily talk to each other. I study moral judgment. I don't study moral behavior. And the reason is because human behavior is really complicated. And the things that make us do things are often unrelated to our moral judgments, unrelated to our values. You mean things about our reputation? and Exactly. Huh? That's right. So people can be very passionate in judging others for not using, you know, for using disposable products and be very angry about that, but they don't connect it to their own behavior necessarily. What really makes us act is social forces, social pressures. We want to fit in. We want to be respected. So if that becomes salient in the group, then people will change their behavior. But if it's just like, hey, let's yell and scream at these people and that binds us together, you know, we'll do that. But that doesn't necessarily connect to my behavior. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. 
Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So I'd love to hear your comment on my strategy of bringing increasingly influential, as influential people as I can get on this podcast, because I think that there's a lot of people saying, well, I, I want to do something, but if no one else does, what difference does it make? But if very influential people are doing things, then they can say, oh, I think that that will influence them more than a bunch of logic or scientific data. So let me introduce a metaphor that runs through all three of my books, The Rider and the Elephant. Mm -hmm. When I wrote The Happiness Hypothesis, um, truth number one known by every ancient society is that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And it's common to illustrate these parts, as Plato did, as the rational part is reason is the charioteer and the, the passions are the horses, is a metaphor from the dialogue Phaedrus. Sort of a horse and rider or horse and charioteer. So one's really active and the other's thoughtful. That's right. That's the standard metaphor. Mm. But based on research in social psychology, I thought, no, that's not quite right. That makes the passions look stupid. And what I want is I want the passions to be smarter and much, much bigger. And so I picked the elephant of a, of a small boy or a rider on top of a large elephant. Elephants are really smart and really strong. And at times the elephant and the rider can work together and the rider can see further into the future. The rider can steer, but only if the elephant wants to go. If the elephant wants to go the other way, there's nothing the rider can do to stop him from doing that. And so that metaphor seems to be really sticky. That is, a lot of psychotherapists in particular like it. And it came out of my own experience in romantic relationships, like realized, like, oh, I should break up with that woman, but then I don't do it. You know, it's like I couldn't make myself do things because the our rider didn't have a horse to, yeah. The rider is strong enough. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so why this is important is you can do a podcast. Your podcast is mostly speaking to the rider. That is, we're talking about reasons and evidence and arguments. To the extent that you trigger passions or feelings, you are speaking to the elephant somewhat. So speaking, reading, these things are usually not enough on their own, but they're not irrelevant. What I mean is, I mean, a key lesson from The Righteous Mind is talk to the elephant first. If you're talking to people and their gut feelings are against you, they don't trust you because they think you're a lefty pinko, you know, tree hugger, whatever it is. If their gut feelings and their emotions are against you, there's almost not, there's probably nothing you can say that will change their minds. You have to speak to the elephant first. And that could mean talking about other things, developing rapport, finding some area of common interest. And once they're no longer against you, then they're open to reason. And so what you're doing in this podcast is putting ideas out there that will be useful to people. But of course, this podcast on its own isn't going to persuade people. I think my hope, and I assume your hope, is that this podcast and our conversation will better equip people to be more effective activists using more psychologically sophisticated means and not just throwing arguments at people. Yeah, definitely. I hope I'm not throwing arguments at people. If you listeners feel I am, tell me so I can stop. And I'm there's one thing that you didn't mention because you were talking about all of it being talk related, and this is audio only. But one of the big things that I don't see out there that made the biggest influence on me was changing my behavior and finding out the results. So listeners know that one of my big changes at the beginning was what began as an environmental thing was to avoid packaged food. And it was really a big challenge. But after I learned how to cook, it became really delicious. And so that change, that forced me to think in new ways that didn't come from me telling me things. It was just, I started thinking, this feels so natural, like eating these vegetables tastes really delicious. I bet I evolved to eat them and I bet this is how it should be. And Yes. Yeah, so in that case, it sounds like you made a change in your habits. You changed the elephant, as it were. The elephant includes the force of habit and patterns. But it also sounds like you are deeply committed to the environment. And so to see feedback, to see like, oh, I'm making progress, I'm doing something good, that was rewarding for you. Most people 
are not so committed. And I think for them, social forces and social factors would be more important. Yeah, it's nice to reinforce the beliefs of people I agree with, but it's the people I don't agree with or people who are doing things. That's the challenge. So I that's guess- right. So I have two specific suggestions for all of your listeners how to be more effective. Number one, read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. He's a great social psychologist. Every human being should read it just if they're going to deal with other human beings. That's number one. And some parts of... Carnegie's ideas are in chapters three and four, uh, two, three, and four of The Righteous Mind. So I think, all right, read The Righteous Mind also, I guess I should say, because I think that also will give people a lot of ideas. The other thing is uh, if you go to RighteousMind.com, the website for the book, and you click on about the book or discussions of the book, there's a section on, yeah, about the book and then discussions of the book. There's a section on environmentalism, and there have been several research studies, a really interesting one by Feinberg and Willer. In fact, it's called The Moral Roots of Environmental Attitudes. It shows that messages that speak to conservatives' morals narrow the partisan gap on the environment. So their research shows that if you tell people, here, you're going to talk to, let's say you're on the left, you're going to talk to the person on the right, talk to them about the environment. What they spontaneously do is talk about liberal values. They talk about care and compassion. They talk about protecting the vulnerable. But if you say to them, I think they told them about moral foundations theory, and they say, here, talk to them and use loyalty, authority, and and sanctity, people can do that. And then they're more effective. So the basic lesson is we tend to speak using our own moral vocabulary, in part because we're not really speaking to our enemies. When we speak about morality, we're mostly concerned with our friends, with impressing our friends. So we speak in the language of our group, which makes us ineffective at talking to the other group. But if you just remember to speak in their language, what I used to say before Trump was... Clean air, clean water? No, I used to say, talk about American greatness. That is, talk about what makes America great and our nature, our natural parks, our vast country, the beauty of the continent, talk about you know, environmental preservation. I mean, obviously, conservatives care about conserving. So there are all kinds of angles to talking about the environment, although, of course, you know, Trump has corrupted some of them. You know, Make America great. It's not, not exactly. Well, you know, maybe it would work even better now. Uh-huh. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? What do you care about? Do you, if you do? Oh, well, I care especially about animal suffering and factory farming. And I'm a hypocrite. I know that I should not eat any factory farmed animals and I try to reduce it, but I tried going without meat and it's hard and I wasn't willing to make the sacrifices. Um, So I care a lot about animal suffering. I care a lot about systems that get out of whack. That is, we live in a complex dynamical system where at a certain level, as we're seeing in the oceans, you know, the pH can go up and up and up or whatever. And at a certain point, it's going to be catastrophic change. Mm -hmm. So I'm very afraid of those. And those, those are the main two things for me is animal suffering and then catastrophic system changes. Well, for either of those, you said hypocritical, and that's, you said it, not me. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, we all are. And you've tried. I wonder if there's something that, is there anything that you haven't tried that might be, here's what I say to people. I invite them at their option to take on a challenge or an opportunity to act on a value that they're not already. And I have to put on a few things. You don't have to solve all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. It can't be something you're already doing, and it can't be telling other people what to do. Would you be interested in doing something like that? Well, I don't want to commit to it on the air here. If you're basically acting as my conscience and saying I should I should change my eating behavior to better match my explicit morals, you're right, I should. I'm, I'm not saying that because they're competing values or competing things going on. And it, this is something that kills me is I talk to people and they say you're judging. And I'm, no, 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 uh, no, you're not, you're not. Or even saying should. Well, you're exploring, you're exploring ways to get people to change their behavior and making a, a challenge. In fact, it's in Dale Carnegie. One of his methods is throw down a challenge. That's a leadership technique to give people a challenge. I think of it more as try before you buy. It's, oh, okay. You, you sample something, you're like, oh, I like that. And then that's my nice. hypothesis. 
Okay. Yeah, that is a little different because, uh, yeah, the, the, I love the taste of meat and I can't digest soy. So it's difficult for me to, it's a challenge that I should think about that again and see what adjustments I can make to improve my behavior. Sorry, that's not what you're saying. I'm still working out what I'm thinking about. This process, I think, is very valuable to listeners because I don't want to present a Disney version of, it's so easy. All I have to do is this and you're done. And to hear people struggle through things, I think is more valuable. And I find that the more effective the leader, the more they share these things, as opposed to showing some strong external exterior. And you're also making me think, I interviewed a little while ago, the, the guy who started Impossible Burger. And his goal is to make... Oh, oh is that the factory, the um, lab-made meat? Okay, so there's two ways people are doing it. There's lab-made meat, and then there's... What he's doing is, he's trying to make a burger that in blind taste tests, people can't distinguish from beef and... Is it made from plant proteins? Is it soy? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's not soy. I think it's not soy. And his goal is to make meat without it going through an animal first. Wonderful. Yeah. That will change the world. Until I heard that way of looking at it, I thought, oh, he's just trying to make a different veggie burger, which I think, have you had the impossible, uh, the, the superiority burger in the East Village? No. Oh, man. He's an artist with this stuff. I'm going to do something that I don't want to do, which is to say, maybe you could substitute a couple meals and try out these other things. But I'm supposed to let you, I try to let you come up okay. with it. Okay, I'll check that out. It's a half mile east of where we're sitting right now. I'll try the uh, Superiority Burger. Actually, the Possible Burger is at Bear Burger, which there's one on... Oh yeah, right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. LaGuardia Place. So what workout is a challenge for you? Um, beyond changing my eating habits, I'd have to think about it. People do a lot of temporary ones too. It's, yeah. I'm not saying like change your whole life right here, right now. Yeah, I do what I can. I think... I live in New York City. I hardly ever drive a car. Or I walk up the stairs. Uh, so, you know, I think I have a fairly low impact life. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that, especially not on the air because I travel by plane and other things. So I'd have to do a full audit, I think. One thing I found is that it's less important how big or small something, what someone does is. It's if they do something. I'm increasingly seeing it as skills that you develop. And if you try to start with something too big, you know, you go to the weight room and you try to lift the weight. You can't lift it. It doesn't work. And you think, well, I never can do it. Or a lot of people include that. Whereas if you just start with something at all, and then you develop the skills, then the, then eventually the heavyweight becomes easy. So I try to let off. I think people have a lot of beliefs, maybe back justified. Like they feel I can't do something. And then they say, well, I can't. There's reasons why I can't. If they can experience doing it, then it gets them off of that. Where there's a will, there's a way. And if the motivation is strong enough, people can do almost anything. But I guess part of what I'm saying is that our moral behavior and our moral judgment are only very loosely coupled and we care a lot more about showing off to people than we do about actually changing the world. Most people on most issues. Obviously, someone like you is deeply committed. For you, what I just said is not true. And for many of your listeners, it won't be true either. For most people you're trying to reach, yeah, they care about the environment. They care about a lot of things. But it's not going to be so high on their priority list that they would really do something costly, difficult, challenging for themselves. So the coddling of the American mind, we haven't really talked much about it. How much of it is leading into, I feel like there's a broad move from analysis to action and to figuring out what to do. Is this book, where does it go in there? Is it just analysis or is it also? Oh, no, no. The book analyzes what's been happening on campus, how the dynamic has changed. The average student isn't that much different. It's not as though the young generation is so radically different. But the dynamics on campus have changed in terms of, because of social media, what people are afraid of and the the ways that one false word, one false like can get people to criticize you publicly. And we care more about a reputation than just about anything else. So the book analyzes what's going on on campus. It shows that there is a real problem for the young generation. This is not about millennials. Millennials are not different from previous generations. This is about kids born after 1995, known as either iGen or Gen Z, 
they have much, much higher rates of anxiety and depression, especially the girls. They have very different notions of safety. They have been raised on the idea of emotional safety, which my generation never heard of. I asked my kids if they'd ever heard sticks and stones will break my bones, and they said no, they had not. They were, you know, fifth grade and second grade at the time. Nobody says that anymore. So we've been raising kids. The subtitle of the book is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And if parents and teachers have been acting as though kids are fragile and need to be protected from exclusion, in my daughter's school, the teacher has forbade groups that exclude other kids on the playground. Everybody has to play with everybody. So that seems very nice, but it means kids don't have experience with being excluded. So then they get to college and any little thing, uh, they're not as used to it. They're not as, basically, when we banned peanuts from schools, we increased the number of kids with peanut allergies, because if you don't let kids' immune systems encounter peanuts, then they become allergic to peanuts. We're doing the same with small upsets, small conflicts. So there is reason to think that kids today coming, the kids born after 1995, I should say, kids born after 1995 are more reactive. They are more easily hurt by words and ideas. Um, There is some reason to think that. And so the book then analyzes six different threads, six different reasons why things are changing on campus including changes in childhood, but also the rise in political polarization, which has led to much greater nastiness, the decline of political diversity on campus, the increasing bureaucratization of campuses. And we show how what we're doing, while it seems well-intentioned, it's really bad for students. It's really bad. We're producing kids who are not as able to go out into the world and deal with people who are different from them and deal with people who hold ideas that they think are hateful. So this is an incredibly hot topic with voices going crazy in all directions, but I feel like you're coming through with a a perspective that's not a crazy voice and could bring the... The The book book is all about how to get systems working. Human beings are really bad reasoners on their own, and if you put us in groups who think just like us, we get even worse. This is especially important for activist movements who tend to create a very thick bubble around them. If you want to bond tightly with your group, draw thick walls around yourselves. If you want to actually change people, draw a circle around them and you that includes them. We need systems that work. We need systems that expose people to people who are different from them. Our reasoning, our thinking gets better when we are challenged, even by people who believe things that are false because we have to defend ourselves. That's what John Stuart Mill said in On Liberty. And I would urge uh, listeners to go to heterodoxacademy.org slash mill, M-I-L-L. And you can download a book. We created a beautiful edition of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, just the second chapter. There's a free PDF as well as a $3 Kindle version of it. And I think anybody who's involved in persuasion should understand John Stuart Mill's arguments for why viewpoint diversity is good. Jonathan, thank you very much. And I can attest that the writing is accessible. It's fun to read. I find it incredibly valuable. Any last words for the listeners? Recognize that we are going through an extraordinary time in which social media and other recent changes are turning us all into self-righteous jerks. Our combined jerkitude threatens to destroy society. We all have to tone it down, be more humble. We don't know the truth. We don't have privileged access to the truth. And we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. So I guess those are my parting words. The environment is important. By all means, act to preserve it. It's arguably the most important issue that we face. And I want activists to be as effective as possible, not as passionate as possible. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Joshua. On a personal note, I greatly admire Jonathan's publicly going through a transformation from more abstract to more personal. That's a leader's journey. And he's entering a crazily partisan area with a calm voice. I greatly support the direction he's going with the coddling of the American mind. 
Also, I've read the articles that he's listed. I'll put the link on, on the podcast page and they've changed my approach too. I'm now starting to work at getting guests who disagree with me. I'm talking more about cleanliness and purity and seeing that perspective. Of course, I care about cleanliness and purity, but in a different way. And I'm realizing when I talk to more conservative people that it matters to them in new ways that I hadn't thought of. I'm noticing sanctity and disgust and seeing how to bring those into the game. I highly recommend reading The Righteous Mind. I'll put the links to his page plus the articles that I read that changed my approach to how to talk to people who disagree with me. If your goal is to lead others and to be able to work with people that disagree with you and to influence them and be open to being influenced by them, I think his work will help a lot. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.